0: Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forhand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Lydia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Andy Constant, founder of Dam Spring Macro Research, a firm consulting to macro-related hedge funds and investment strategists. From Andy's experiences at Bridgewater and building rules-based investment strategies to how the interactions of the Fed are impacting the market today, to evaluating U.S. government debt auctions and where he sees the most likely outcomes for the markets and the economy going forward, Andy has a beautiful way of making these complex topics understandable and potentially actionable for investors. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Damp Springs' Andy Consell. Hi, Andy. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks, Justin. Looking forward to it.
0: We're going to walk through your framework. Um, on investing and how you are thinking about the markets in the economy and I think where some of the risks and maybe opportunities are. But before we get into that, um, I was doing some prep work for the interview. And one of the things, you actually have a pretty diverse set of investing positions that you've had in your uh, professional career. But one of the things that sort of jumped out to me and I think probably stands out to a lot of people is you were at Bridgewater for a few years um, doing different things with a few of their CIOs, and I'm sure you had some, um, interaction with Ray Dalio, but I wanted to sort of just ask you, um, if you could talk to, uh, some of the experiences you had there, and maybe just to start, it would be cool to hear from you, like what the biggest, what the biggest lesson maybe you learned from working there.
1: Sure. Happy to. Um, I'll start with the biggest lesson. Um, and that is that, um, before I joined Bridgewater, I thought about uh, investing as a series of uh, of trades. Um, you know, I I would have a strategy, and that would and trades would come from that strategy. Uh, but each trade was um, separate. And after the trade, though that intelligence about what may happened in the trade, the learning from that trade um, weren't wasn't um, really kept except in someone's brain. And so for me, um, and I sat. this is when I sat down with Bob Prince and told, and we were discussing what I thought was, uh, you know, very early in my career, what I thought was the best trade I've ever seen. And to be honest is still the best trade I've ever seen, which was selling 10 year, um, S and P volatility at 38%. Um, which at the time was very unusual, um, and still is and realized much, much less, um. So Bob said, you know, Andy, I think that's a great trade, um, but it doesn't give us anything. It doesn't make any value. It doesn't give us any value. And I was like, well, you know, we probably, at the size Bridgewater, could do this. We probably make, you know, $20 billion for our investors. Um, and he said, yeah, but then that would be over. And we wouldn't have anything more than the money we made. And that was, that struck me as bizarre, but he explained it to say that what they do and what I did once I learned this lesson was, um, what they're trying to do is capture a alpha stream that'll last, you know, a generation ideally, but you know, at least 10 or 15 years. Um, and something that can be repeated again and again in a systematic way. And the learning on that is far more important to them um, than the learning about a, you know, the amount of time one would have to take to learn
0: about a particular unique circumstance that is unlikely to ever repeat itself. Uh, That's interesting, because I can see how a lot of people when investing are thinking about their trading and not thinking about this higher level, grander, sort of longer term sort of strategy. And it's kind of plays into the follow up question to that is, you know, when you were working there, Is it, were they doing that feedback process on their employees and tracking the ideas and the rating, the ideas and trying to make how those ideas flowed systematic?
1: Yeah. So I was, you know, I was there soon after the principles were were released, but before they had been, you know, sort of systematically uh, implemented. And I was there at the beginning of the systematic implementation of the principles and things like the dot collector. Um, and I thought that was a interesting experiment. Um, it ended up to me to be part of the reason why I left simply because of the amount of time that was dedicated to it relative to the time, a very large time that was already developed, devoted to investing was um, doubled by um, uh, this systemizing humans idea. And I do get the idea. I think that there's something reasonable to know about what someone's truly like and how they're like to likely to, um, to, uh, um, react to various stimulus and how they're best partnered with people that have complementary skills and you avoiding at work in which they are most suited to. Um, and so all that I think is a good, uh, end goal. The implementation was, you know they learned something. The whole process was a learning thing. So the implementation had its um, its positives and negatives. To me, the big
0: negative was it just required a lot of time. Are there any misconceptions uh, out there in the public that you think kind of aren't really, you know, true with how people perceive Bridgewater, the culture, or maybe even to some extent, the investment strategies that they run?
1: Well, let me say that um, I don't know. Um, but because I don't know what the, um, outside impressions are by people. Um, to me, the experience of being there was the biggest growth opportunity of my career. Um, I learned more about, uh, investing and myself than I've ever could have ever imagined in those three, three and a half years I was there. And I think it was the most rewarding experience I've ever had. It wasn't perfect, but it was as close. It was, it it, it is the highlight of my life. Um, so. I fit in that organization, um, for three and a half years, which is, you know, a long time for an outsider to most people that come there, come from, um, um, undergraduate, um, straight from college. And as, as a, um, experienced hire, it's a bit more complex to, uh, fit in. But I think from a culture fit, it was, it was a good match for me. Um, but as it relates to the investing, I definitely know. That people don't understand how Bridgewater invests at in the large. And that's because there is some perception that, uh, the port, the CIOs, um, pull levers on the portfolio to express views. And the answer to that is they don't. Um, I have the unique role of being right at the point where all of the ideas are, um, then turned into, uh, um a portfolio and then executed. And I will say from that vantage point, I know exactly how much discretion or lack of discretion the CIOs have. And I would say the amount of capital out of a hundred cents on the dollar, um, one cent at most is discretionary. And 99 cents are simply the models doing what they're programmed to do. And I think that is broadly misunderstood.
2: In addition to Bridgewater, you've worked at Solomon Brothers in your career, you worked at Brevin Howard, and you've had sort of a long run of of experience in the markets. And I'm just wondering, you know, over the course of your career, what do you think the biggest changes are that you've seen in the markets?
1: Well, certainly, um, well, from a standpoint of, uh, so mostly nothing, um, mostly it's, there are the things that I focus on are, um, and learned this expression at Bridgewater, timeless and universal and have to do with the way. People act in an economy. Um, now I would say that one actor has taken a much, much larger role, um, than ever before starting in 2008. And that is the central banks. Um, but the fiscal side has always had a major role, uh, government fiscal side has always had a major role and the private sector has always had a major role. Um, and I don't think that is by and large changed, um, at all. Uh, people are still doing the same things they've done. I think the level of sophistication is um, evolves every day. And so, um, you know, the people that uh, have alpha go from um, shift through time. Um, people lose their ability to make edge. Um, when I started, insider trading was a real thing that happened all the time. Like, all the time. Um, anything from um real you know investment bankers telling their friends to buy a stock that's about to get acquired to um large Connecticut based hedge funds um getting a call early when a large block of stock is about to be sold front running that and buying on the print all of those types of things and for that matter winks and nods between central bankers and invest and uh, um, um sell side firms about what is likely to be the shifts in interest interest rates all of that happened now the edges are much and so that was an edge for people illegal but an edge um nowadays that still exists but is much less and people who can do you know fancy things with anticipating human behavior um with and do it rapidly with computers are really just doing the same thing but you know it's just trying to get in front of somebody else's order flow.
2: So do you think technology in general, I mean, do you think it's made it much more difficult to get an edge for people or do you think it really hasn't changed all that much?
1: Well, I think doing something illegally has always been an easy way to get an edge and will continue to always be an easy way to get an edge. Doing something legally has always been very difficult, uh, but the amount of capital that's deployed um, for various types of trading strategies, um, in itself, uh, by and large, Increases along with the size of the market, but is very cyclical. And you know, the people that were doing capital structure arbitrage before the um, great financial crisis um, lost all their money in the great financial crisis. And so, those types of strategies go out of favor for a period of time. And there's quite a bit of alpha available. So it depends on who's doing well and the blowups that have happened. And so. But by and large, the amount of capital is expanding for um, relative value strategies, for arbitrage strategies, for alpha strategies, um, in the in an exactly the same way it always has. Which is so. For instance, this year, twenty twenty two, until the s- September ish, uh, CTAs were the way to make to make alpha. Um, And CTAs are momentum-driven strategies that had extremely strong performance in um, the first half of this year. And the assets under management grew rapidly, and they lost money. In fact, the average investor in most of these funds, given how much new money was put at risk in the second half of the year, lost money for the year. Um, because the strategy got very, very crowded. And then we had that uh, momentum pivot in um, October and November that put all those CTAs um, um, on their back foot.
2: So those sort of things happen all the time. Yeah, that, that seems to be a timeless lesson in markets is people are always going to chase what works right now. Um, you know, and they're probably going to be late to, to whatever it is. I, I remember like back in the day, and, and you know, the permanent portfolio was a great way to invest. But you know, after two thousand eight, like money just flooded into the permanent portfolio. You know, right, right, effectively at the bottom. So, you know, investors have this tendency to always be chasing what what has worked, maybe, it, maybe it to their detriment. Uh, you know, momentum is a real thing too. So, if you can get momentum, you're going to end up
1: being ahead of the people that buy late and selling to the people that buy late, and they, of course, are not going to make money. And that's actually a fairly timeless and universal um, driver because of that very human nature you described. So. Momentum is one of the factors with that, without a doubt, um, have a basis in sort of human
2: behavior. I want to talk about your framework. You mentioned that the Fed is playing a much bigger role in the market today than they used to. Um, You have a really interesting framework that kind of incorporates what they're doing with the QE and QT, and then also what the government's doing in terms of deficits and surpluses. And I'm wondering if you could just at a high level talk about what your framework is.
1: Yeah, sure. So there are four pillars. Um, The first pillar is... um, in terms of picking assets, you have to know what uh, growth expectations are going to be. So if, if, I, if, I own a, uh, if I have two choices, lend money to a, a new business like a lemonade stand or own the lemonade stand, um, I'm choosing between bonds and, and, um, in the first case and stocks in the second case. And, you know, a lemonade stand does well when, you know, people start buying a lot of lemonade and so that's growth and so if you can expect growth in your uh in the economy um you'd prefer stocks over bonds and so that's one pillar what's growth doing um the next one is inflation inflation's interesting in that for nominal bonds for fixed it for fixed income um when inflation is higher um you're only receiving the same fixed income and so by lending to buying a bond Lending to somebody who pays you back ten years from now, um, your purchasing power when you make that loan is higher than when you give it when you get your money back. And so inflation is bad for bonds. It's a little more complicated for equities, but it's actually quite easy for things like commodities. Um, and so the second pillar is how our inflation expectations laying out. Um, the fourth pillar, I'll come back to the one you want to talk about is my third pillar. But the fourth pillar depends on, a lot of the things we just spoke about, which is um, how are investors positioned and what might they likely do? And I call that flow in positioning, and it's something you can monitor for across a wide range of investors. Um, but the third pillar is the one that's been dominant for since 2020, um, and that is um, what I call risk premium. And risk premium is um, the following thing. Um, if you have cash and you give it to somebody, either a bo- somebody who wants to sell you a bond or a stock, you're going to take on risk because cash isn't going to change tomorrow, but those, one of those two investments is, is going to change tomorrow and you may want your cash back. And the only way you can do it is to sell your app, your, your, um, your investment to somebody else and you can suffer, um. A, a, a drawdown, and you could have less money. And so for that, you need to, take, uh, you need to be compensated. And that's, um, and that's the benefit of holding assets. Um, people will compensate you for taking risks. Um, sometimes they compensate you very little. Sometimes they compensate you a lot. But in all cases, um, the compensation for taking on risk is positive. And so owning assets, by and large, is a good deal. Um, But what's important is that um, periodically um, the demand for assets, meaning the savers, and the supply of assets, meaning issuers like the government, corporations, um, banks, anything that um, creates um, an asset, um, get out of whack. And when they get out of whack, the supply and demand gets out of whack. And when they get out of whack, uh, that affects their price. So there are t- in, in the QE example, which started in 2020, uh, uh, I'm just talking about the post-COVID QE, the Fed was buying assets from the market, um, and the, that money um, squeezed the price of assets higher um, because there was an imbalance between the supply of assets and the demand for assets. And that caused risk premiums to fall, which is inverse to the multiple of a stock expanding um, and caused an extensive rally um, in um, assets. Um, in QT, the opposite is happening. The, the um, private sector is being asked to take on more assets than they'd prefer. And so savers have that may have a fixed demand for assets, now we're seeing a greater supply of assets that results in their price falling to increase their the demand that they um, have to make the market settle. And so that back and forth is my third pillar.
2: And how does what the government's doing in terms of running a deficit or a surplus play into it? Sure.
1: So the government is a participant. Um, they really are a... Um, a wealth transfer mechanism more so than a participant in that, um, when they run a deficit, well, whenever they spend, you know, they spend by taking taxes in and paying them out to somebody else. And so that itself has an economic impact, even if there is no deficit or, um, or, um, surplus, because if you today take money from savers and hand it to consumers, that tends to be stimulative because consumers, instead of saving, will go out and spend, and that will create demand, which should create growth, potentially inflation. When you run a deficit, um, the same thing applies. You're shifting money from one, the people that give it to you, in this case, um, taxpayers and savers, and handing it to the economy in in a different way. And so um, it really depends on um, all the mechanics of how that transfer occurs. um, Who gets the money? Who provided the money? And what do they do with the money? And so tracking those sort of things um, is important. And the interesting thing about the post-COVID time was that the government, funded by the 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 Fed, buying the bonds didn't have to find a new saver to get money to hand to the economy. They got the Fed. And so the money came from the Fed and then was handed straight to the economy. No pain by the, the, no, the savers felt no pain because they didn't have to buy anything. And the economy got a whole bunch of dollars that they could spend. And that was inflationary. It took a while for that to play through the market, but that was the inflationary impulse. This very large, it's like, like there's a MMT is a, the popular way, um, phrase now, but that was essentially money that was monetized by the fed and and helicoptered from the fiscal side and that is an inflationary impulse.
2: There was an example last year where you ended up getting bullish. And, and I think the, the reason you got bullish was effectively the government had a surplus. And so that was sort of washing QT, I think to some degree. But I may have that wrong, but I, mean, I was wondering if you could give that as an example sort of, of how these two things interact. So
1: in April of 2021, um, 2022, uh, the stock market was down and falling. And um, on May 3rd or so, Um, the government announced what it was going to be issuing and the issuance fell dramatically and that was because they didn't need the money because of high inflation and you know, the wage inflation wasn't as high as it is now, but was, was positive. Um, that meant the, um, tax receipts that came through from regular old income tax, which is the biggest source of income for the government blew out were just enormous, resulting in lack of issuance. Now, it was one factor that lack of supply of assets, um, was one factor on why I got bullish in, um, the later part at the, on June 29th, and then, um, followed it up with, um, a call on in mid July. Um, the rest of it was the positioning and the other economic factors and valuation. Um, but that was a
2: major factor. Can you explain the, uh, one of the things you've talked about a lot is this TGA or the Treasury General account. C- can you explain what that is and how this plays into this whole thing? Um, the Treasury
1: Treasury General account is just like your bank account at any other bank. And you, um, uh, and the in this case, the government, their bank happens to be called the Federal Reserve. Um, and what they do is when they get inflows from taxes, they deposit it into their bank account, the Treasury General account. And when they spend money, that when they write a check, they they get the money from that bank account, just like you and I would for a checking account. Um, and so it's the clearing account, it's literally the checking account that all the spending and save and um, and tax receipts go into. On top of that, it's also the account where if they issue a government bond, the proceeds go into, and if they redeem meaning pay off a government bond, the money comes from that account. So it's really the central place. And so you can see what the flows of the treasury are based on the movement of that account.
2: And will they will they use that strategically at all? So will they at certain times say, I want to have a really high balance in there or I want to have a lower balance? I mean, is there is there anything that sort of impacts markets coming from there? Yeah, so
1: I think in um, pre-running up to the election, um, if you recall, uh, the, you know, it was going to be a close election and secretary of treasury, uh, secretary of the treasury, Mnuchin, um, knew that the spending needed to get us through COVID had not yet ended. Now, the Republicans probably would have had a different form yeah. of spending if they had been elected, um, and may or may not have done the excess spending that, um, actually occurred. Because we didn't know this was a time when the vaccines were coming through. Um, we just didn't know. Um, um, so what's important about it is that Senate, um, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin built up the TGA to well over a trillion dollars. And that was essentially at the expense of investors because to build it up, you had to issue bonds because the tax receipts were just the normal thing, the spending was just a normal thing, but they decided to make a war chest for after the election. Now that war chest ended up getting spent by the Democrats, but at the time it was very impactful on the way assets behaved in September of, 20, of 2020, um, and then subsequently why in 2021, when that got spent down and issuance didn't have to happen, that
2: that had a positive impulse. So, as we deal with the debt ceiling right now, is is that effectively how the government gets through something like this? I and mean, when they lose their ability to issue new debt, are they just building up a big balance in the Treasury General Account that's keeping them going?
1: Like right. that's another strategy, which is if you had built up a big TGA, big big checking account. Um, now that would that build up would have had to been financed by the debt, which hits its ceiling. Well, there's only so much you can build it up, but at the moment, um, the only choice for the government once they run through their um, extraordinary measures is to spend that down. And when they spend it down to zero, close to zero, um, then the parties that need to get in the room will get in the room and the drama will um, and unfold with, you know, the normal histrionics.
2: Another thing I've heard you talk about that I was not very familiar with is this idea of the reverse repo facility. I wondering if you could talk about what that is.
1: So, remember we talked about this amount of spending that the government did, and they came through in stimmy checks, and some of that money found its way into consumption and generated inflation, and some of it found its way into meme stocks and crypto and the markets, but a whole bunch of it. And so, let me just take this step by step. The money that got spent, stimmy check arrives, you buy a... a um A TV's bad because they're not made in the U.S. Well, you buy a service, whatever it is, something that we sell. Um, And that's bought from a corporation. And that corporation deposits that money as awnings. Some of it they give as wages to their um, employees who then go ahead and spend it, and it ends up back in the corporate coffers. All that spending that happened now rests, by and large, in corporate cash accounts and corporations, um, you know, want the highest possible interest they can get for their cash. Um, and unfortunately in March of 2021, the government decided to, um, make banks, um, have to put up more capital, meaning it less attractive for them to have deposits. Okay. Um, these big corporations want to deposit their money in the bank and get interest on it, um, but the banks can't take it. So they pushed out the money. And so the reverse repo program was, is essentially a way that the government's bank, the federal reserve takes the deposit and pays interest on it. Now there's, it's a complicated plumbing, which isn't worth going into. But essentially, if you think about banks, the total banks and their deposits, the RRP is just a deposit with, instead of going through a middleman of a U.S. bank, is a deposit directly with the Fed and it pays interest. And so um, the important thing is, is that money is still available at any moment in time to, for use in consumption or investment. And so the combination of sort of the reserves that banks hold plus the deposits, um, the, the RLP um, that's on the, on the Treasury's balance sheet means that there's a far more cash. I, I hate to use the term sitting on the sidelines because it wants to be there. It doesn't want to be invested, but sitting out there to potentially ignite into consumption or investment. And so QT literally drains that liquidity. And so when you look at the RRP plus the bank reserves, which are a liability on the the Fed, versus the assets they have, we know that as their asset side of their balance sheet falls, the combination of the RRP and the reserves will fall. And how that plays through the, the economy and the markets is important, but it really has to be done or else eventually animal spirits will drive this this short-term deposits into the real economy generating inflationary pressures.
2: One of the things I've learned the most from you is that this idea of, you know, when the government issues debt, where they issue it, the duration they issue it at is, is very, very important. Whether they're issuing bills or they're issuing something further out. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about and talk about that and why it's so important.
1: So let's just say there are only two participants in the world, um, the saver and the treasury, the U S treasury and the U S treasury says, um, you know, the, you, the, 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 private sector has its investment portfolio. It sort of likes what it has because it owns what it has. If it didn't like it, it wouldn't own it. So it owns what it has. And the government says, uh, we need some money. Um, we're going to consider two different issues. We're going to um, consider a one-year bond or a bill, or we're going to consider a 30-year bond and we're going to get the same dollars for it. So we don't really care, but do you care? And so the investor says, huh? Well, a one-year bond, I get my money back in a year, so I'm not going to be able to lose, I'm not going to lose any money on that thing, no matter what happens, and a 30-year bond, hmm, well. Those went down 35% last year. So a year later, I'm down, you know, I have 65% of my money. I I, I really prefer the the, the one-year bond. But the government says, you know, we really like to sell the 30-year bond. At that point, the investor says, gosh, I already own too much risk. I'm going to sell some of my assets to make room for this very risky thing the government's asking me to buy. The problem is, there's just one person, you, who do you sell it to? The sale of assets has to be bought by somebody else who's considering the 30 year bond as an investment. So what happens is that all investments fall when the government tries to issue a 30 year bond and no one really cares much if they decide to issue one year bond, people will take, take that one year bond gladly without worrying about what happened to their portfolio. And so, yeah, the shoot the choice to issue risky secure riskier long-term securities versus extremely low risk short-term securities, I think has a significant impact on markets.
2: You know, one of the things people talked about back when rates were really low is this idea that, you know, the government should be issuing lots of 30 year bonds or they should have come up with a hundred year bond or something like that. I mean, does this framework say that that actually would have been a really bad idea? That would have been great for the government. It would have been bad for markets. It would have been
1: bad for investors because they would have lost a lot of money. Okay. And I didn't. Looking back, that would have been a great sale by the government and a terrible buy by the investment population. That would have, that had follow throughs regarding the economy. Yeah. All those investors who bought those things would not be able to afford a, a Lambo. So, you know, that's would have been bad for investors and possibly, you know, through the wealth effect had some impact on, um, on spending, but from a financial transaction, yeah, the government would have been much better off selling long-term bonds. And right now, with a very negatively inverted yield curve, um, one-year bonds are yielding close to 5%, and 30-year bonds are trading well below 4%, it seems likely that the
0: government would prefer to issue longer-term bonds and lock that spread in. Just a comment there, I was always amazed this was a uh, you know a few years ago when you had over in Europe you know how much debt was being issued at like negative interest rates an amazing amount, and it always just amazed me that these investors are going to sit here for you know because they're so risk averse for 10, 20, even thirty years and <laughs> basically not make anything with interest have it be negative it was crazy
1: yep that's um that was an unusual time and It has the possibility of occurring again, but, you know, it was a fairly unusual time where um, um, getting your money back with any interest at all was thought to be a good or even slightly giving a little bit of your money away was better than spending cash today.
2: One of the interesting things you've talked about, which, which really taught me a lot, is this idea that, you know, Janet Yellen really has a lot of, she plays a huge role in determining the impact of QT here using the framework you just talked about, right? So the, so the idea is if she issues at the long end, that's really bad for markets. If she's issuing a lot of long duration debt, if she's issuing with the short end, it's good. So a lot of people, I think, think the Fed is sort of deserving this impact, but it's really her, right? that's is this impact.
1: Right. I mean, there, she has the lever. Now the question is, does she use it? And can she use it? The answer is she can use it. There are consequences of using it. Um, Right now, the Treasury has a stated policy to um, maintain supply of long-term duration at around three hundred billion a quarter. And whatever they don't need or need more of, they issue the rest in bills. And so that's a they care about having a product a a um predictable supply of long-term bonds because they don't want to surprise markets. But, it would certainly be true that if they wanted to, um, stimulate, they would reduce the coupon issuance and issue bills. And if they wanted to enhance the, um, um, oh, the, the, uh, is, the, um, impact of QT, they could increase the number of coupons and decrease the, and decrease the number of bills. The thing is that they also don't, that's strategic. And that's their policy in terms of a predictable amount of duration. At the same time, they also have to manage um, rising and falling budget deficits because that has an impact on the quantity. So they don't have complete control in which they can do it because they still may have, they have a debt ceiling now, and they also have a fluctuating budget deficit, um, which depends on the economy. So... She has a lot of control. The one person who isn't exerting control is the Fed. All they're doing is saying, our bonds roll off every $60 billion a month, um, pay us. That's all they're saying. The transmission mechanism is the issuance of the treasury bonds.
2: I'm just curious, over time, does the government issue like a pretty consistent percentages in terms of long-term debt and, you know, medium-term debt and short-term debt? Is, Is that something that changes a lot over time or is that pretty consistent?
1: So they've made lots of changes. There have been there were times when um, the 30-year bond didn't exist. There were times when, uh, for periods of, you know, right during the Clinton surplus in 1996, they canceled the 30-year. The 30-years that were outstanding at the time really liked that um, because there was no more supply of 30-years. And then in, um, and they've been hot and cold on the seven-year um, that, um um whether they issue that particular security. Uh, But by and large, no, they keep a fairly constant duration because the issuance calendar, it's heavily advised by the Treasury uh, Borrowing Advisory Committee, which is a combination of sell sell side and buy side um, uh, investors and um, uh, market makers um, to make sure that duration is, you know, predictable and, um, and they give a lot of advance notice.
2: One of the cool things you do on Twitter is is you whenever there's a treasury auction you'll you'll just tweet out a greed um you know a or f or something like that and and I'm wondering like if you could just take a, give take us behind the scenes and and tell us what you're looking at when you when you determine whether a treasury auction is an A or an F.
1: sure um there are five factors um the the, the um technical factors are um the percentage of investors that are that really matter or to me, the percentage of investors that bought on an indirect basis because those who bought, and that means they went through a broker to buy the treasury versus going on treasury direct, which is a link direct to the investor. Um, the more indirects, the more likely foreigners bought because foreigners are the ones who don't have access to the treasury direct system. Um, And foreign demand for treasuries is important as we've seen, you know, China has been reducing its treasury holdings for a period of time. They were significantly increasing their treasury holdings. People focus on the big holders of treasuries like Japan and the UK and particular um, um, public sector currency managers like the Bank of China. And so you can tell whether an auction is being bid by the Bank of China, roughly. Um, by the indirect. The other is the bid to cover, which is the number of people that would have um, been happy to take the auction at the price that it traded at. The higher that is, the more demand there is. Um, The directs are important because that sort of shows the amount that the net of the directs and the indirects leaves you with the dealer quantity. And that, you know, has some value, but those first two are the most important. And then there's the secondary market When the trade happens, was the yield higher before the auction, or that the ultimate treasury was auctioned at, or lower? If it is a if it's a lower yield than the auction, um, that means that the auction didn't go very well, and so that and then the secondary market trading subsequent to the auction, which I notice immediately. Um, those factors add up to a grade and why do I grade them? Well, a really, really bad auction or a really, really good auction, an A plus or a D minus, we've never failed. We've never not had an auction succeed in the United States. They do happen, but not in, not in the U.S. Um, a really good auction or a really bad auction can have an impact on broad asset classes for a couple of hours. That's so I pay attention for a couple hours. Um, But then it's the set of auctions, like in January, we had A-plus auctions again and again and again, and they were all on high indirects. Um, And I think what we'll find is part of the liquidity that has kept the equity markets uh, bubbly, not bubbly, strong after um, the end of the year has been... Liquidity that's been provided by um, foreigners buying U.S. treasuries. And so equity people, domestic people, and fixed income people don't have enough treasuries to buy, so they go out on the risk curve because they got squeezed out by the foreign governments. Um, And so I think that's an important multiple auction thing that I um, pay attention to.
0: So I've got a proposal. Let's call this the Andy Constant US government debt issuance Twitter report card. Absolutely. I just
1: I just put out the grade and every single time I do somebody says, What's this? Why did you say minus randomly?
0: I mean, yeah, I'm sure if you created like a primer of I'm sure you have it, like of what everything Yeah. I oh
1: as soon as as soon as I get that question, I retweet the same thing. So, out. We did every auction that I get that question, which is pretty much every auction. I can't I can't figure out a better way to do it rapidly and also um,
0: explain everything. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you explained your four pillars before. So just to recap, it's growth, inflation expectations, how investors are positioned or the flows, and then this idea of the risk premium. So could you kind of just talk quickly about what your views are on each of those and how those are relating to the stock market today and also the bond market today.
1: Sure. So, um, well, let's describe the islands that I tweet about all the time. Um, There is, um, I think there are three likely outcomes and the path to those outcomes may include multiple versions of each of these outcomes. But there are three likely outcomes before we reach normality, whatever that may be. There's a deep recession that kills inflation because the Fed has, um, by raising interest rates, hit demand adequately so that people lose their jobs, inflation dies, and um, we have a recession. Um, There's um, a soft landing, um, and that is where magically inflation falls um, partly due to the Fed's actions, but also due to any other number of things. Um, despite a very strong bond, um, job market and the Fed can take their foot off the brake, not necessarily cut rates, but at least no longer hike. Um, inflation stays low and we don't lose a lot of jobs, And that's sort of a, that's what people think of as a soft landing. And then there's the higher for longer Island and. On that island, the Fed has not yet killed inflation because the job, because what I mentioned about lots of liquidity and um, the job market being very strong, um, inflation takes longer to uh, fade. Um, and in that world, the Fed has to increase interest rates more than they have um, and to tighten financial conditions to cause either a soft landing. Or a hard landing or or a recession, but they keep going. And so assets, prices, you know, depend on which of those islands we're heading to. And the thing I've I've noticed most, and a lot of that has changed in the last, call it week, um, is that the recession island, well, one thing for sure, given the amount that assets have rallied in the um, first half, the end of the, all, all Q4 and into Q1, soft landing is the central expectation of markets. People expect this to work out. Inflation's going to come down. We're not going to have a big recession, and that has inflated all asset prices. Because it's it's great for all asset prices. The Fed eases or or doesn't hike anymore. Earnings are fine. No recession. Buy bonds, buy stocks, buy gold, buy mean stocks, buy high-tech stocks, buy the biggest shorts. All those things work perfectly in a, in, in a um, soft landing. So that trade has, in my view, very crowded. But there's also pricing in the fixed income market that is um, unusual in that despite the Fed saying that they are going to s- – regardless of whether we have a soft landing or higher for longer or even a recession, that they're going to keep interest rates high, um, and pause. Once they reach terminal rate, pause and, um, pause for a while, but the market until early until last week, um, had priced 200 basis points of cuts. Um, once we hit terminal rate in March or June, um, rapidly, um, which implies from that the bond market is, 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 um, um, ensconced at recession Island. And so that to me is unusual, particularly given, uh, recessions are bad for equities, um, they're bad for corporate credit. They're bad for anything in which earnings go down rapidly. Um, despite interest rates falling, earnings drive equity prices lower, um, and the multiple is high today. Earnings expectations are high. They haven't really come down much. They've come down a little bit, but not much, not like a recession. And so the disparity between what the, um, short-term interest rate market is pricing and the equity market is pricing is pretty unusual in my view and create to me, creates both opportunity, but also a fair co- amount of concern that, um, you know, that dis- disconnect is gonna, um, shift fairly rapidly. And we're in that process this, this, this week, um, the, um, CPI today, uh, which was right in line, um, has resulted in, uh, um, higher interest, short-term interest rates across the curve. Um, and some of that recession is getting priced out and people are looking for, you know, where the economy is going to go. I think it's going to go to the higher for longer place. And that's actually a place that equities can survive at Um, because higher for longer means that growth is higher. Inflation is higher, which means nominal growth is higher, which means profits are, uh, sorry, revenues are higher. Now it's a question about whether profits will be higher. But as long as expenses are going up at the same rate of inflation as the top line, that's actually pretty good for profits. And so equities can survive a higher for longer environment. We have a headwind because bond prices will fall rapidly and earnings are discounted by the risk-free rate. And so high interest rates are a headwind against that otherwise bullish conditions for equities. But I could see where higher for longer ends up with equities holding its you know sort of range um, but the thing is that and bonds sell off a lot. but the thing about the higher for longer scenario is that is not a goal that is a short term destination that leads to normality through either a soft landing or a recession. and in my view, this idea of the soft landing um just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's because of the um, tremendous fiscal and monetary flows that we've seen and the withdrawal of those fiscal and monetary flows just being very hard, lots of wins, crosswinds for the Fed to navigate with a extremely rough tool. They can change interest rates or they can change QT. That's not many levers. And they really don't have much to do with QT. Janet has them. So I think that's very hard to land softly with those set of controls and those set of headwinds. And then you add on the fact that China is, has, is at a complete, has just begun its flight. And the UK is, uh, and Europe are sort of at their peak in that, you know, they've got a lot of tightening to do and they haven't even come close to approaching the runway. And so with those lack of, because the globe is so um, out of sync, it makes another difficult, um, challenge for the fed to have a soft landing. And so, you know, I think the path is higher for longer for the next, I'll you know, call it three months to nine months. And then a deep recession, um, with a, potentially, a you know, a look at the, uh, at a soft landing runway, getting priced in again, like it did this, this last quarter, um but I don't see us landing But
2: I'm just curious, uh, you had mentioned that the bond market is kind of on recession island and you know the stock market's probably in soft landing island. There's this old adage people have that, you know, when the stock market and the bond market disagree, the bond market's always right. And you've had a long career in markets. And I'm wondering, do you do you think there's some truth to that? I think there is no truth to that. I And I don't say it out of just,
1: I know that the guys in the equity department that I'd worked with were definitely not as well educated. Um, Um, you know, didn't wear the, the, um, you know, this is the eighties and people were, it was very different world. All the Harvard educated kids were in fixed and math guys were in fixed income. And all the, you know, the locals that came up from the trading floors were in the equity floor. It's definitely, you know, you'd see more jewelry on the equity floor and you'd see, you know, Hermes ties and, um. Harvard degrees on the fixed income floor. So I get the smart idea. The problem is they're not very good at predicting. It's what I consider important is, is to, does the bond market out, always lead the equity market so that you can, the, what the bond market is saying will then a month later show up in the equity market? Well, if so, there's some alpha there. And I've looked for that alpha to look, to see if bond market information leads equity market information, and it doesn't exist. It's well arbitraged. So despite what the pedigrees of the fixed income um, uh, investor versus the equity investor, uh, there's nothing to the logic that they're smarter. Um, at least in my, you know, my analysis, which is done systematically to see if I could find all I'm doing is searching for alpha. And so if that thing you said was true. That would be great alpha and easy to find, and you, no one could find it.
0: Well, I want to go back to the Fed for a minute. I mean, what do you think of the Fed's credibility in the market today? Like part of what, when you were talking about like assets rallying so far this year, like part of me thinks the market doesn't believe what Fed officials are saying. And so it's like, they're going to be easing into, you know, later next year. And so assets are reflecting that. But then I think back to the Great Financial Crisis, what they did in COVID, and I mean the Fed gained tremendous credibility at those times of crisis when they were, you know, the last person in there trying to hold up the economy. But then they completely missed inflation, um, you know, in late 2021, and 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 then they've changed their stance. Obviously, so there's a lot of cross currents there. I mean, what's your feeling with how credible the Fed is in investors' minds today?
1: I don't, the idea of credible or not credible is not useful to to me. me. What is useful to me is, um, you know, and there's quite a, quite a wide range of views on what credibility is. The way I look at the federal reserve is they are people that act on the best information they have and make the best decisions they can within their mandate. And like anybody else are often wrong. Um, and. My job is to try to find out, you know, think about what they what they would do if, um, if I was, what I would do if I was in your, their shoes and see if that logic makes sense about what they actually do and how they handle it. Um, I think the idea of credibility, for that reason, um, I'm not, there's no should about whether the fed should do this or shouldn't do that. It's all about what, what they do and how they do it. And then that's, what's important. Um, But I would say that there are times in which um, no matter what your level of credibility is, um, everyone, even the most aggressive gold bug who thinks that the Fed is that we should have um, hard money and go back to a gold standard and thus the Fed has no credibility whatsoever can acknowledge just like me, it was like, yeah, there are a bunch of people doing what they do. And so, you know, whatever that means in credibility more than the the gold bug things, um, but we both can probably agree if their credibility moved positively or got better or worse. And I think that's the important thing. Did their credibility get better or worse? And I would have to say, you know, their credibility would probably got worse, um, by being, um, mechanically late to inflation, um. They made a mistake on the way inflation was going to work, and so they missed it. And since then, their credibility has gotten better. That's pretty much the way I'd synthesize it.
0: But is is it credible? That's somebody else's judgment to make. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Wanted to, um, as we get to the end here, just a couple more things. Um, I wanted to ask you about this idea of risk budgets and how you've sort of set up your portfolio. I think that's, this is be interesting for our audience to hear how you kind of view that with your investment strategy.
1: So I think the first thing for your investors is that um, there are two ways to make money. One is owning a, passively owning a portfolio of assets for the long-term, I call that beta. Um, and the other is to try to time markets, which I call alpha. And those are the only two ways in my framework. Um, And the thing I would say first is that alpha is really, really, really hard. Um, I've done this for 35 years, 38 years. I probably thought about markets for 150,000 hours. Um, you know, when I'm doing anything, I'm thinking about markets. Um, and I, I don't know if I have alpha. I don't know that I can reliably have alpha. I have to work on it every single day to get better and better. And so alpha is really hard. And so the simple answer is I would allocate very little of my portfolio as a um, high net worth wealthy investor uh, to uh, seeking alpha. Um, If you can find alpha um, and you can allocate money to someone who has reliable alpha and then monitor that they maintain their alpha through time, yeah, some allocation to alpha is a good diversifier for a long-only portfolio. Um, In terms of The beta portfolio, you know, my view is that you should have a broad diversification across asset types, countries, currencies, um, in order to try to smooth out and diversify away most of the risk, but you're not going to diversify away risk when money gets very, very tight. Um, like we saw in, uh, 2022, but The sizing of that is what matters and your willingness to hold that for a long term. Because I think strongly that
0: everyone should have a beta portfolio. But I'm guessing that, you know, your standard 60-40 stock bond portfolio, the way that you would think of that is investors need to have more assets sort of represented in there, especially in this new world of potentially higher inflation, higher for longer.
1: Right. So the 60-40 portfolio, number one, is extremely exposed to rising growth because of the amount of stocks it has. And so my first step in thinking about a better portfolio is to reduce my exposure to growth. Um, unfortunately bonds are anti-growth assets. And if you reduced your exposure to, um, to growth by buying bonds, you were, um, um, not happy this year. So that was part of the trap. Um, and that's because, uh, inflation, um, drove bond prices higher, lower, sorry. Um, it wasn't falling growth would have been perfectly fine for bonds, but inflation is what drove them down. And so what you need is a portfolio of uh, assets that are going to do well in inflation. And those tend to be things like commodities um, in particular. So,
0: um, Andy, we really appreciate you um, spending the time with us. I, I think that a couple things sort of shine through for me at least, and I think that will for our audience as well. I mean i like the 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 sort of timeless universal principles that you look for in investing and you've helped explain um you know some of that today and then also taking these complicated macro topics and piecing them together in an explainable way i mean this stuff isn't at least to me and we've been jack and i've been this for you know decent number of years and it's still hazy to us and seeing how and thinking through how it all ties together, I think, is important for investors to consider now and in the future. So appreciate all this. Um, we we tend to close with, with one standard question um, for our audience, and that is based on your experience in the market, if you could um, teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Huh.
1: Um, so I think the, the answer is um, find a portfolio you can live with manage it passively through time, and um, don't think you have an edge because you probably
0: don't. Great. Thank you, Andy. If people want to learn more about you, follow you on Twitter, learn more about your firm and the business that you're in, where can they go? They can go to dampspring.com
1: or follow me at Damped Spring. Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Guy. Appreciate the time.
0: Hi, guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.